Welcome back to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rocking good time in about 10 to 15 minutes with your good buddies Tim, Treg, and Michael. Once again, we have our guest, JD, who is Treg's cousin. As always, we bring you the stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and provide you with other interesting ruminations about the songs that have inspired us over the years. Today, Michael is going to tell us the story behind the Don McLean song, American Pie. Now, before I turn the time over to you, Michael, I have to tell you, we're going to dedicate this Rocktail Hour to my mother-in-law because she's the one that specifically requested the Rocktail Hour behind this song. So this one goes out to Janice, and we'll turn the time over to you, Michael. Thanks, Tim. American Pie uh, comes off of the self-titled album, American Pie by Don McLean, was released in 1971. I believe the subtitle of the song is The Day the Music Died. The song, in, in one of the opening references, opening lines of the song, is, is obviously about the death of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper who died in a plane crash in February of 1959. Uh, and that uh, plane crash taking uh, so much talent from us uh, you know, evoked the lyric, The Day the Music Died. Don McLean was a paper delivery boy uh, when he heard in 1959 that uh, this plane crash had occurred and, and that these uh, rock and roll stars had died. And Don McLean penned these lyrics from his memories of uh, receiving his stack of papers uh, in the morning to go do his delivery route uh, and cutting open the bundle and seeing on the front page the news that these three young men had, had died in a plane crash after a concert. Uh, but the song is really about a lot more than uh, you know, just that plane crash and the death of those rock stars. Um, in, in, a, in a broader sense, it was a song that McLean wrote about the transition of music uh, from the 1950s to the 1960s. And not only about the transition of music, but the transition of politics between those two decades. Uh, the 50s being uh, seen uh, particularly in, in historical uh, perspective as, as being somewhat of a time of innocence and kind of carefree and happy times. Uh, you know, certainly after the end of World War II, uh, there was a significant boom in the economy. Uh, there were no significant wars going on at the time. I don't believe uh, Korean uh, conflict had been declared a war yet. The 1960s were clearly a very, very different time politically, but also musically. You know, the music of the 50s was this kind of doo-wop, rock and roll, Elvis Presley, the, the social mores of the time. Uh, you know, it's kind of famously known that, that when Elvis was on television, they couldn't even show the, the bottom half of his body because of his gyrations was so, uh, so, <laughs> so offended the, 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 the public and, and what they believed was appropriate at the time. Uh, the 60s, a very, very different time. You go from not being able to show the bottom half of, of Elvis's body to the, the sexual revolution of the 1960s uh, was a very significant transition historically in our culture. Uh, and the music changed uh, fundamentally as well. You know, some of the, the music was seen to be much uh, darker, uh, more heavy uh, in terms of its social tones uh, and, and, and more serious. And Don McLean was trying to write a song that evoked uh, that transition. And I think he hit the nail on the head with American Pie. So, uh, you know, American Pie is really fundamentally about that transition. The day the music died 
um, from the, what McLean believed to be the carefree song and sound of the 1950s, which uh, apparently he preferred over uh, the 1960s music. Don McLean was a, was a practicing Catholic and believed that uh, a lot of the uh, music and lyrics of the 1960s uh, wasn't something that should be welcomed into society. I think Don McLean would be one of the folks who uh, believed that we should not see the bottom half of Elvis's body. I wonder how he felt then about Goldie Hawn on Laugh-In and then later on Madonna and Britney Spears on the Music Awards. It, it, it's interesting that you mentioned Madonna because it's something that I did not know until I started looking into this song was that Madonna covered American Pie. And it has been actually ranked as the worst cover song of all time. I don't know if any of you have, have heard it. Worse than Dolly Parton's version of Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> <laughs> so, again, what, what McLean was trying to do was uh, not so much tell a biographical story, although there were, clearly were biographical elements uh, in this song. Uh, he was trying to evoke a feeling of this you know, shift in, in culture, politics, and music and get it through you know, what he saw as poetry. And McLean was, over the years, over the four decades since the song has been written, has been asked many times to interpret the lyrics, and he really eschews uh, giving interpretations himself. He, his response is typically that it's poetry and that the listener should really pour their own experiences into it and take away from the lyrics what they will. Notwithstanding that McLean doesn't like to interpret his lyrics, there are uh, lots of uh, interpretations uh, that have been you know, given and that I think McLean has uh, at least not debunked. You know, for instance, uh, Sgt. Pepper's The Album had a very uh, profound impact on McLean, and I think you can see in the structure of the song some of the kind of free form that was prevalent on the Sgt. Pepper's album. There's a reference to, to, that, to that album in the song, uh, in, the, in the lyric, Sergeant's played a marching tune. Uh, it's kind of a, a shot back to, to, to Sergeant Pepper's. Wow. Uh, you know, the free flow of the song, this song was, oh, I think, eight minutes and 33 seconds long, mm. which ranks it as the longest number one song of all time. The song was so long that the single, when it came out, they had to split it onto the front and back side. So you actually had to listen to the first four and a half minutes, then turn the single, turn the turn the record over to listen to the rest of the song. Uh, it, you know, nice, you know I'll bet there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there who don't even know you're talking about 45s. JD, have you ever seen a 45? I have. Yeah, <laughs> my parents had them. So. I'm pretty sure anybody listening to us has has seen a record before. Another interesting interpret, another lyric I think that is uh, interesting in the song is that it references the jester uh, in a coat he borrowed from James Dean. That's been widely interpreted to be a reference to Bob Dylan, uh, because if you remember in Bob Dylan's album, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan, uh, Dylan is on the cover of that a photo of him in a red jacket, very similar to the red jacket that, that Dean wore in Rebel Without a Cause. It's also supporting this interpretation of the gesture being a reference to Dylan is, you know, throughout Dylan's uh, catalog of music, uh, the gesture is a recurring theme. We had a rock tale hour not too long ago about uh, All Along the Watchtower, the principal character there, of course, being the Joker. Uh, and there's literally half a dozen other songs um, where uh, the gesture is a prominent figure in, in Dylan's lyrics. The song also refers to, uh, while the king was looking down, the jester stole his thorny crown. 
some think that that is a, a reference to, again, Dylan um, stealing the crown off the king, who was Elvis. Uh, so uh, kind of symbolizing the transition of the music from the 50s to 60s and Dylan unseating Elvis as the most popular performer of his day. I know uh, we've talked about Joplin a couple times. Um, it's believed that Joplin is, is uh, the woman referred to in the line. I met a girl who sang the blues and asked her for some happy tunes, but she just smiled and turned away. You know, Joplin had died just a year before of an overdose, uh, a year before uh, the song was written. So a lot, a lot of people believe that that was a reference to Janis Joplin. I mentioned that, that McLean was a practicing Catholic and uh, looked down upon or was uncomfortable with the transition in the music from the carefree kind of feeling of the 50s to the dark sexual kind of overtones uh, of the 1960s. Uh, his Catholicism is evoked in the final line of the song, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died. Um, you know, kind of a belief that, you know, the, the, the morals, at least, of the, the Catholic tradition uh, had to be, you know, kind of forsaken in this uh, new music of the 1960s. The song itself, um, you know, Don McLean, I think he's only known for, he's not a one-hit wonder, but at best he's a two-hit wonder. Uh, it was the, you know, this song and then Vincent, which is on the same album, were the only songs that I, I really know of Don McLean. And, uh, you know, Vincent, I don't think really stands up well to, to the day the music died. But this song has really catapulted McLean into stardom. Uh, he was kind of a really an unknown singer uh, to suddenly uh, being you know, famous throughout the world for this, just this one song. And it had a very negative effect on his life. McLean said that he was not ready for the attention, the stardom, and the money that this song brought him. Uh, and it made him a miserable person. He describes himself after uh, the fame from this song as neurotic and petulant. Um, so I think a, a, a theme that we've explored in, in many podcasts about how the, the stardom actually brings, uh, the stardom that rock stars uh, seek and then achieve actually brings them uh, quite a bit of unhappiness in their life. And certainly that was true for, for Don McLean. And ironic that at the same time, uh, when they're successful by writing a song like this and it brings them unhappiness that they don't anticipate, it, they've written a song that speaks to so many people and, and makes them happy. And so what an odd dynamic between the, the two juxtapositions there. It also reminds me of uh, one of the lyrics from a Chris Daughtry song. Uh, Chris Daughtry was one of the runner-ups on uh, American Idol and put out... Uh, put out a great rock and roll album, uh, much better than most of the uh, the winners, the American Idol winners that I've heard anyway. Anyway, one of the lines that he has, it says, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. Yeah. And so Jenny, Jenny, my wife has frequently, many, many times <laughs> said, uh, I tease her about that because she repeats herself very often. Sorry, Jenny. Uh, anyway, she says many times, uh, I wonder if he's really upset now because uh, he's become so successful. Yeah, I, uh, Trey, just to defend Jenny here, I believe her view of that is she has to repeat herself because you don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, I did have a, I had a friend who, um, he was into music when the the internet industry started getting big and he got offered a record deal and he thought about what his life might be like in the next 10 years and he turned it down. 
just wow. because he simply thought that that's not a family life and that's what he wanted to lead was a family life, so he turned it down. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. You don't hear that very often. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I've had to turn down recording deals myself. Yeah. <laughs> For those in the listening audience, I, I've heard Treg sing. I know that's absolutely untrue. <laughs> Treg and I did musical theater when we were uh, younger, and uh, it was all about the acting for Treg because he simply had to mouth the words. Otherwise, we were in trouble. So the, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned that, that Don McLean uh, kind of eschewed the, the request to interpret the lyrics. And he certainly uh, found the stardom to be something that was not to his liking. Um, but it, I, I love uh, the best quote from an interview that I found from Don McLean was that he was asked years later, uh, what does the song mean to you? And his response was, it means never having to work again for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This song has really stood the test of time. I mean, this one was not, it wasn't written before my time. It was actually written the year I was born in 1971. So, you know, it sent it, but I grew up listening to this song and loving this song. And, you know, just a few weeks ago, and what caused me to actually, one of the reasons I picked this song for a podcast was uh, I was scrolling through my 11-year-old's playlist that she had just put together. And, you know, it has the kind of the usual suspects, you know, the Jonas Brothers and Lady Gaga and things that 11-year-olds listen to these days. But there was, this song was also on her playlist. And it was the only song from the 1970s. But but, you know, even, you know, an 11 year old, you know, someone who was born 30 years after this song was written, um, people still love this song. That's fantastic. I do have a funny story about uh, about this song. Um, it, it's so great to sing along with. I think it's irresistible. In fact, it comes on and you got to sing. Right. I was uh, moving with Jenny when we were moving from Utah to D.C. to go to law school. And we, we piled in a uh, moving van, and Jenny's dad was going with us. I think he would have been in his 60s at the time. And Don McLean comes on, and we, it starts to play. And before long, you know, we're starting to sing along. And you get to the second verse, and we're just all at the top of our lungs, you know, the three of us, <laughs> me and Jenny and Ralph, all just belting out the day the music died. It was great. Yeah. It is just a beautiful song to listen to. And and the words are beautiful as well. I, I love the words. And whether they have meaning or they don't have meaning is really irrelevant to me. I, I do like the idea behind what some of the words mean, but they flow together so well that they're beautiful to listen to. And that's what I like uh, the most about this song. Um, and, and I want to just say that the fact that an 11-year-old would put this uh, on a playlist on their iPod, that speaks that there is a little bit of hope for the future. <laughs> so that's great. I have to say, going back to my mother-in-law just a little bit, and I'm going to give her a little bit of a shout-out here. Again, you know, we talk about, you know, Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and, and, and Richie Valens, and, and the connection uh, with their plane crash to this song. And when my wife and I were first dating, uh, that was about the time the movie La Bamba came out. And for some reason, my in-laws, my future in-laws, had just signed up for HBO. And this movie, I swear, had to have played for 24 hours a day nonstop for three months. And 
my wife and I would come home from school in the afternoon and we'd walk into the living room and and my future mother-in-law would be sitting in the living room and I swear just at the time that that it was the end of the movie and there was the plane crash and she'd just be in sobbing in the living room and we'd be like oh just Janice watching La Bamba again. <laughs> I don't know how many times we caught her in the living room crying over La Bamba, but Janice, this one's for you. So there you go, at least for me anyway. Well, thanks, Michael. That's a, that's a great song, another really great song with a great story behind it. To all of our listeners, we appreciate your patronage, uh, appreciate the comments that you're leaving us on our website. We ask that you not only like us on Facebook on our website, but go out to our page and and see what we have to offer on Facebook and like us from there as well. Uh, We're also available on Twitter. Again, appreciate all of the good comments. If you have any stories, if you have any suggestions for songs that you'd like to hear, let us know. You can send us an email at dudes at rocktailhour.com. And until the next uh, episode, rock on. Rock on.